Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy, and you can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I'm speaking with Ray Take. Ray is a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he writes on Iran, political reform in the Middle East, and Islamist movements and parties. He has been a senior advisor on Iran at the U.S. Department of State, and he is the author of a number of books on Iran and a history of U.S. policy in the Middle East. His most recent book is titled The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty, which came out earlier this year from Yale University Press. And today I'll be speaking with him about the book, as well as more recent developments in the region. Ray, thank you for coming on the Caravan Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So the book, The Last Shah, uh, it's a fascinating read. I found it very engaging, very informative. Uh, it's clearly based on a lot of original primary archival research, um, and it goes against the grain in a number of ways, which I want to ask you about shortly. But first, I thought I would ask you just to tell us something about the book's central character, uh, Muhammad Reza Shah. What was he like um, as a leader, as a person, and what propelled you to want to write a book about him and his reign? Uh, I wanted to write a book about why the Iranian revolution happened. Uh, and actually, it was my editor at Yale who told me to fully understand why the revolution happened. You have to study the entire tenure of the Ahmadi dynasty. And this way you can understand the political evolution and the, the political trajectory of the, of the Shah's tenure. And it turned out to be right. Because when you study the entire tenure, you realize the inflection points and at various times where things could have gone very different. So this is the, the origins of this particular book. Now the Shah as a person, and there are a number of fine biographies of the Shah, professed uh, 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 to the work of biography. But what I would say as a person was to say the least, extremely complicated. Uh, he was an amalgamation of contrary impulses. He had an authoritarian personality, but he was unwilling to essentially impose his will. I think the famous Iranian historian or Iranian Anne Lampton said it best. She said he's a dictator who cannot dictate. He cannot rule Iran, but he won't let anybody else do that. Uh, he wanted to grandize power in his hand, but he was indecisive in times of crisis. I would say the Shah had a vision for Iran. He wanted a modernization of the country, industrialization, urbanization. He has an element of idealism in it. His model for development was always the West. He always wanted to emulate Western modalities of industrial development and so forth. In some ways, I think the Shah didn't like Iran. For him, Iran was a great laboratory for social experimentation. He was once asked, why don't you rule like a Scandinavian monarch? And he said, fine, give me Scandinavian subjects. Wow. Uh, so in a way, I think for him, Iran was a place where he could try out different ideas as a means of his development. I would say he was a nationalist, and his management of Iran's foreign affairs was quite adroit and brilliant. His domestic abilities were less so. Uh, I will say one more thing in, in, in conclusion of 
at the end of the day, as a positive development, positive assertion, the Shah was many things. He was cynical, he was arrogant, but he was not inhumane. He was unwilling to shed blood to remain in power, which is why he did it at the end. Which is perhaps a contrast with the current rulers in Iran. As far as we know, uh, I would say the current rulers of Iran have not been tested by the way he was. Uh, this is an open question, whether if they are tested by a national movement that's resilient and broad, whether they can have instruments of oppression at their disposal. And, and even if they have the willingness to repress, would they have the necessary security organs to discharge that obligation? That is an open question. My view is I'm not so sure that they would be able to do so any more effectively than the Shah. That is interesting. Um, so going back to the book, if there's one one major theme to me that stood out, it would be that of Iranian ownership of this period of history, Iranian agency, Iranian actors, not not Westerners, are the the consequential actors in your book. And 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 one place where that comes out very clearly is with regard to the 1953 coup. Um, Americans are often told that we were complicit in removing a democratically elected um, prime minister. Uh, by supporting the, the the Shah in 1953, your take is is definitely more nuanced than that. Could you tell us what what really happened in in August 1953? Uh, I will say what I have tried to do with August 1953 and is to situate it in the larger tapestry of modern Iranian history. And most of that history, as you suggest, uh, is is the, is driven by the Iranians themselves. So what has happened in the historical reconstruction? is that many historians agree that Iranians were drivers of their own history, and they skipped over 1953 uh, as an exception to that rule. Somehow they were not involved in the direction of their country. I would say two things about the coup. Number one, uh, and before we get into the mechanics of the coup, is about the implications of the coup for the Iranian political system. Because too many people draw a straight line between 1953 and 1979, in essence suggesting that without 53, 79 would not have happened. That is, if anything else, an ahistorical argument, because you're essentially saying an entire generation is meaningless. A whole set of decisions that were made in the 1960s and 70s which are therefore essentially erased from our public memory. And too many people talk about the Pahlavi dynasty in terms of 53 and 79 without the interceding events. Uh, and in my opinion, the hedge, hinge years in Iranian politics in the Pahlavi dynasty were actually early 60s, not 1953. But let's talk about the 1953 mechanically. Uh, in 1953, there were not one but two coups uh, the first one was August 15 that failed, the second one was August 19 that succeeded. Uh, it is important to suggest that by that time, Dr. Mossadegh, who was a nationalist and did many good things, had forfeited much of his popular support, and much of his support among key sectors of society, the military, the clergy, the merchant class. Uh, he was, because of his inability to resolve the oil issue, because his inability to compromise and his ruinous economic policies, and increasingly tendency to a political despotism. I think there's no gainsay that the CIA was involved in trying to plot with Iranian actors. To, throughout the 1951-1952, Iranians kept coming to the American embassy asking for assistance. 
By the way, again, it is not unusual for the Iranian political elite in the 1950s to appeal to foreign embassies because the great powers were so involved with Iran that in some ways they were arbiters of the politics of the country. Uh, the first coup fails, and at that time, the United States begins to retreat from further plotting. Certainly, that's the case in Washington, that the State Department, President Eisenhower, and the CIA. Kermit Roosevelt is the American agent on the spot. And there are indications that, irrespective of the fact that Washington had given up, he does engage in some activities in between the period of August 19th. August 15 and August 19. So what are those activities? I think the most important thing he did was to publicize to foreign press and therefore the domestic press in Iran the Shah's decree dismissing Mossad. That's the most consequential thing he did. And, and just to be clear, this is a legal decree. The Shah wasn't doing the anything. The Shah has a right, right to dismiss his prime minister and his uh, and and. and Mossad, therefore, was no longer legally tenable prime minister of Iran. Uh, and that's what Roosevelt did, publicizes. I think a lot of people don't seem to understand, or, or, or I should say they neglect, the fact that the monarchy as an institution was popular in the early 1950s. Uh, it had good relationship with other stakeholders, whether it's the clergy, whether it's the military, whether it's the merchant class, whether it's the aristocratic nobility. The monarchy was anchored on a measure of popularity, uh, which was not the case by the time we get to late 1970s. And the Shah of the early 1950s was an indecisive ruler who would often yield to the elder statesmen around him. And he was deferential to the clerical community. So, in a sense, the monarchy's popularity rested on his willingness to share power with other institutions and to pay some measure of deference to other national stakeholders. All the things that Dr. Mossadegh was unwilling to do. Mm -hmm. So, his overthrow came about largely because of domestic factors. It was mostly a military coup, more so than a popular insurrection, as some of the monarchists claim. Uh, it was a military coup conducted by domestic actors who at that time were still capable of making decisions independently of the monarch because the Shah fled in 1953, as was his custom. He was not a fighter. Uh, when things got tough, uh, he hit the road. And it was to his advantage that there were people around to salvage his monarchy when he was no longer capable of making decisions. I would say that historians of the intelligence community will tell you it is very difficult to say <coughs> with precision why an operation works and why it doesn't. It is very difficult to isolate the factors that causes a coup to work. But in 1953, we have decided that the United States was complicit in the narrative that you, you, you suggested, which is, which is very, as I said, uh, the United States overthrew an independent and democratic government. It's simplistic and it conceals more than it reveals. Uh, this is an awfully complicated issue. Uh, and I do believe, uh, in the end, the agency was the Iranians themselves. They were the most, uh, they bear the responsibility for that. I think one of the reasons why the coup has suggested, has the, the narrative of the coup has lasted as long as it has, is because in some way, the coup cannot be understood as a historical proposition because a history is a contested one. I think it has to be understood as a 
seamless amalgamation of two political cultures. A Persian political culture that doesn't want to take responsibility for anything, and the Americans who think it's all about them. So East has it's been also, It's also all about our, our nefarious you know, undertakings in, in the third world and that sort of a narrative, isn't well, it? Well, that, that's sort of a new left historiography comes into it. Uh, to further buttress the Americans who think it's all about them uh, uh, in a strange sort of a way. Uh, I noticed you, you wrote an article several years ago, probably making the case about, about the 1953 coup, um, the way you do in this book. And, and it, it certainly um, it generated a harsh, uh, sharp response from a historian. Um, and it was very passionate. You know, it's just, it was very interesting to me that this issue is you know, generates such passion. Well, the, the, if there are seven people who really care about this, really care about this. <laughs> uh, and the historian, I think you're suggesting, has, has, has devoted his entire career to understanding the coup. That's not where you were. Uh, but, you know, there's a certain narrative that takes place that has congealed itself. Uh, I was the, Islamic, that, the Islamic Republic also takes a great deal. Well, this is yeah. very interesting, Paul, because the Islamic Republic actually there is talks about the coup internally very differently. Ayatollah hmm. uh, Khomeini, the founder of the revolution, talked about the coup only on two occasions. Uh, and the Islamic Republic's rendition of the coup, when they're talking to their domestic audiences, not when they're coming to the United States, and it's in the Constitution, is the Islamic Republic position, the clerical community's position is one, that the nationalization movement to reclaim Iran's oil was led by the clerics, not Mossadegh, and that Mossadegh failed because God didn't like him. <laughs> that it is the position of the Islamic Republic is that the only revolt, the only just revolt that ever succeeded in modern history of Iran was the revolution of 1979 because it enjoined divine approbation. And the reason why Mossadegh failed is because he did not enjoy divine approbation. Why? Because he was secular in his way and liberal in his disposition, liberal in the sense of separation of church right. and state. So it wasn't the CIA's fault. It was It wasn't his, the CIA's fault, God's yeah. fault. Yeah. <laughs> God fault. And him. nobody, as far as I know, has confused CIA with God. Although both institutions take both institutions take morality and ethics very seriously. But but in its public policy vis-a-vis um, -vis the United States, the Iranian regime uh, calls up the, the history of the coup quite often. Isn't that right? In terms of its public presentation to the Western audiences, it embraces the new left historiography, yes. But in terms of domestically, when they speak about it, and when Ayatollah Khomeini spoke about it, he was very derisive of Mossadegh. Uh, he was very disparaging of him. Uh, I can go into a story that he said, tells you if, you, if we have time. Uh, uh, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm certain it's not true. He said in the summer of 1953, I came to Tehran. And remember, the leader of the clerical movement at that time was Ayatollah Karshani. He had glasses. There's two things you have to remember. Ayatollah Karshani wore glasses, and dogs have not fared well in Islam. Let's put those two data points aside. Khomeini says he came to Iran. This is in his collective works that he observed. Observe, uh, he observed demonstrations, and those demonstrations, he said, a bunch of people were parading a dog with glasses on. 
which means they were disparaging Ayatollah Khashoggi, the real leader of the nationalization movement. And he said, at that time, I realized that these people will fail because they're secularists, they're disparaging of religion, and they don't have God on their side. <laughs> that is the most elaborate presentation of the coup by Ayatollah Khomeini. And it, it is in his collective works, I believe in July of 1981, he told that story when he was banning the National Front, which was Dr. Mossadegh's whole political party. Well, that's interesting. I wasn't I wasn't aware of, of Khomeini's uh, references to the coup. Um, let's get back to to the Shah and and following the 1953 coup, um, he seems to develop some, into something of a different uh, personality. becomes uh, more autocratic, more despotic. Uh, he centralizes authority. Um, kind of creates um, the 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 regime around him, um, which is kind of odd because it seems that before 1953 he was diffident and unsure of himself. Um, so was there really a transformation here? What account? I would say the Shah always had an authoritarian personality. From 1941, when he came to power, uh, he thought only dictators could do great things. Uh, and so that personality trait was always there. He was always suspicious of the powerful people around him. He was always suspicious of the Western and the great powers because of what had happened to his father. What happened in 1953, in aftermath of it, he becomes more committed to ensuring that he will have no rivals and there will be no independent-minded politicians in the country and that the only way the country can move forward with modernization and development was for him to be more assertive. So I would say the underlying sentiment toward despotism were there, but he becomes much more active about it. In terms of, and he doesn't really uh, reach the point of essentially imposing his will on the political system. <clears throat> really, I would say from the mid '60s. Mm. And there is an interview he gives, a book of interviews, uh, in late 1970s. The, the book is titled "The Mind of the Monarch." The subtitle should be "The Deranged Mind of the Monarch." <laughs> uh, in which he's asked about this very question. Uh, why did you put up with all this democracy and pluralism, elite pluralism stuff early on? He said, well, it took me a long time to be able to maintain all the levers of power in my hand. So he does address that question. I think the book was published in 1977. It was a collection of interviews, I believe, by a Pakistani journalist, which was very diffusive, and that question does come up. Uh, and he does talk about the fact that to remove the obstacles in his way took, took some time. Uh, so I would say to you, he always had an authoritarian tendency and a personality. He always disparaged democracy as a Western disorder. But to mean centralized power in his hands took some time. And that was ultimately detrimental to his rule. And many people told him that, including Eisenhower. It is important to recognize that very, all American presidents that the Shaw dealt with, from Roosevelt through Carter, with the exception of Richard Nixon, advised the Shaw to reform his politics and broaden his coalition. Nobody did so more strenuously than Eisenhower and Kennedy, paradoxically. Yeah, this is another issue where you seem to to um, to be a bit revisionist when you, when we talk about U.S. policy toward the Shaw. 
Um, it's generally seen that he was kind of our uh, an American stooge almost in in the Middle East um, in a lot of histories. Uh, but you make him you make the, uh, the the American presidents out to be a bit more critical of him. Um, what, almost what all of them were critical. Almost uh, all of them were critical of him. Eisenhower was particularly frustrated with him in the early in the late uh, in the nineteen fifties because of the Shah's unwillingness to reform his politics and broaden his economics. Uh, they were concerned that he was spending too much money on the military and not enough on economic development. All of them advised him against that course of action, <laughs> as I said, with the exception of Richard Nixon. Yeah, there, um, there was a fascinating part of the book where you went at the end of the Eisenhower period, where I think yes. you, you quote him um, almost contemplating staging a coup against the Shah, um, where he's very wow. he's he's upset with the way the things are going, and he's at least there is a coup. There is a second coup in the 1950s. It is in 1958, and it's a contemplated coup against the Shah. There is indication of American complicity. A coup against the Shah, American complicity. I went to the National Archives, and I said, I want to see the General Aroni files. That was the general who who was contemplating the coup. Mm-hmm. And they gave me two boxes. When I opened them, there was nothing in there. <laughs> there is a, some documentary record that indicates the United States were at least aware of the coup. And American diplomatic officials, the diplomats in Iran, did meet with coup plotters. Uh, that would be indication of Eisenhower's frustration with the shock. The quote you're talking about, it was in 1961 <clears throat> when Eisenhower was about to hand over power to John Kennedy. And he was very frustrated with the Shah. And I think the, coup was, the, the quote was, I hope liberals in Iran replace the Shah. Uh, so if nothing else, the history of U.S.-Iran relations is fraught with paradox. Uh, there was a lot of frustrations with the Shah, particularly during Kennedy years. Less so by the time you get to late 1960s because the system seems to be sorting itself out. And America was drowning in Vietnam. Okay, so let's get to uh, to the revolution. Um, you described the Shah in the, in the chapter on the revolution as, quote, a victim of his own success in creating a modern middle class and a vast student population. So I'm wondering if you could tease that out, uh, a victim of his own success. Um, to what extent do you think the Shah is responsible for bringing about the revolution. Well, he's responsible for bringing about the revolution because of Iran's uneven modernization. On the one hand, the, the country was developing into a large middle class. Uh, there was a vast student population. There were professional classes, and they wanted a state in the country's politics, which the Shah was unwilling to provide them. And the Shah's bargain with his people, like many places, was a transactional Namely, he was willing to give economic benefits for sake of political passivity. That was unacceptable to the Iranian people then. It's unacceptable to them today. Uh, I think they wanted some voice in the way the country was governed. And he was unwilling to provide that. And the lack of available political opportunity for a large and enlarging middle class and the loss of confidence, therefore, in civic institutions, I think, was to some extent responsible for 
radicalization of the protest movement and eventually the call for the spanking of the monarchy, rather successful calls for the It's interesting that um, the revolution also uh, coincided with a, a liberalization um, program by the Shah, where he was trying to open free speech. He talked about reinstituting democracy and freedom of the press. Uh, it seems that all of that was just kind of weaponized by the political opposition. The Shah, everybody understood in the 1970s that there was something wrong in Iran. By the way, the United States Embassy and American Intelligence Services recognized this. As I described Iran, I think, in the 1970s, I think the phrase I use is a dynamic country nobody wanted to live in. Uh, even the Shah understood there was a problem. And he tried his hand at liberalization, which was hand-fisted and built all out. And this actually indicates how hard it is for some of the authoritarian personality to engage in reforms, even if he understands the urgency of reforms. Ultimately, he couldn't, didn't know how to liberalize in a measured, effective way. And the process of liberalization just got out of control, and he was unwilling to forcefully stop it. And I'm not even sure if he had an apparatus of repression at his disposal capable of curtailing the protest movement well the idea of trying to stop what happened brings us to to the carter administration's uh policy it's often said that president jimmy carter lost iran or something to that effect um you show that spignev brzezinski the uh, national security advisor in the carter administration was actually quite quite interested in and uh, quite supportive at least of the idea of putting down the the protests um during the revolution so what is it? Uh, what's your take on the Carter administration's approach? Uh, by the way, so was Carter uh, in favor of repression. Uh, it is often, as you said, suggested that Carter lost Iran. I think that's unfair, uh, and I think it's untrue. Uh, it may come as a surprise, and I have said this before. Uh, no American tried harder to stop the revolution than Jimmy Carter. Let's see what he did. Uh, once he focused on the issue, I think he did so with discipline and determination. Uh, uh, he advised the Shah to repress the revolution, which the Shah did not. There are some indications that he was trying to have a coup in Iran in 1979, in February 1979, but they couldn't find a capable of Iranian to discharge that. And in aftermath of the revolution, and we know from the record that, that President Carter is the only president that I can think of since the advent of the Islamic Republic to sign an official presidential finding ordering the CIA to change the regime in Iran. And he did so in December 1980. And I did a small essay on foreign affairs online where I go into it. Uh, and they established an opera operating group in the White House to oversee that, which they named the Black Chamber. Black uh, Chamber. Black Chamber. I have asked people how did that name come about. Nobody is aware of it. Sometimes it's called Black Room. Sometimes it's called Black Chamber. So why do we have this impression of Carter as indecisive? Well, because a it didn't work. When things go wrong in Iran, Americans tend to blame each other. Uh, so <laughs> if Shaw couldn't handle the situation, then it must be Jimmy Carter's fault. So here's a sequence of events. 
the Republicans blame Carter, Carter blames his ambassador, and the intelligence community. So here I come along and say the Republicans were wrong to blame Carter, Carter was wrong to blame his ambassador, and Carter was wrong to blame intelligence failure for his actions. But as I said, when things go wrong in Iran, Americans blame each other. And in this case, they formed a fire circular firing squad and they shot at each other. And I, there's nothing Carter could have done to prevent the collapse of the monarchy because at some point the Shah was no longer in control of the situation and he refused to assert his authority. It is my opinion that he did not have the armed forces capable of repressing the revolution because the armed forces that he had left was manned, led by second-tier generals whose principal function was to be obedient and not have big thoughts. Uh, the general that Jimmy Carter sent to Iran in January 1979 to kind of straighten out the Iranian army and get it ready for a coup, his name was Robert Heiser. He's written his memoirs. Mm -hmm. And we'll know more when Heiser papers come out. Uh, so Heiser shows up to Iran. In Iran, the official holiday, the day is Friday. Uh, so he shows up to the barracks on Friday, and there's nobody there. So he calls up the head of the Iranian armed forces. He said, where is everybody? He goes, well, it's Friday. We take a day off. <laughs> no, you don't. There's a revolution. Everybody back to your offices. <laughs> yeah. So he had not much to work with. Uh, but no, Jimmy Carter didn't lose Iran. Uh, I don't even know if the revolution toppled the government or the monarchy simply crumbled. That's an interesting question, and, and I, I'm being told that your next book might try to answer that question. Is that right? Yeah, um, I have another book that um, I, I assigned a contract to do a second book on the revolution. I keep writing about the revolution, hoping the outcome is different. Uh, they always show up. <laughs> no, but so, but the, one of the reasons for that is uh, the Carter archives on the revolution are still not released. Uh, they will, because they've been tied up in lawsuits, uh, lawsuits between the United States and Iran that have not finally been resolved. So we'll have the full accountancy of Carter administration's presidency on Iran. And what I always say to anybody who wants to listen, all presidents should try as rapidly as possible to declassify their records when they leave office because they always look better. Once you, once you have the full available archival evidence, you appreciate the context and the constraints. Uh, it's advice I would give to any president who asks me, and to answer your question, none have. Uh, because <laughs> you always look better when people understand the full scale of the events as they unfolded in real time, where you are asked to make decisions, often with imprecise information, in a situation where the outcome is almost always uncertain. So at the end of the book, you offer some reflections on what this period of Iranian history might mean for Iran today. In particular, you point to some of the parallels between the Shah's regime and um, in its later years in the Islamic Republic today. Uh, you write that, quote, the Islamic Republic is making many of the Shah's mistakes. I'm curious if you could tell us what, what are those mistakes and are, are you saying that history is poised to repeat itself? 
Uh, they're making all of the Shah's mistakes. All of them. Uh, yeah. uh, the political disaffection, which they cannot ameliorate. Economic dispossession, which they cannot do much about. Uh, provocative class cleavages, official corruption, and there's something going when a theocracy is drowning in corruption. Because for those who profess piety and sacrifice, and then say, see you later, and they get into their BMW BMWs to go back to their homes, that becomes particularly galling. Uh, the Shah didn't, was arrogant, but it was a sanctimonious. Uh, <laughs> most importantly, I would say, the Islamic Republic, as with the Pahlavi dynasty, is incapable of reforming itself when it senses the urgency of reform and is dealing with a disaffected population that understands who's at fault and who's to blame. The critical question that people debate, to which there is no precise answer, is whether the Islamic Republic's security services are as unreliable as the Shah security services turn out to be. It is my opinion that they will prove just as unreliable. Uh, let me give you a small anecdote. Uh, I'm curious about that because they seem like a much more ideologically motivated, you know, security service than what the Shah had at his disposal. Right, uh, and to some extent that's true. Although I don't believe they can repress this sort of a resilient national movement. Let me give you an example. Uh, in 1972, Richard Nixon visits Tehran for about 14, 15 hours. Uh, four bombs went off during his visit. At one time, he was trying to visit a mausoleum or something. He couldn't get out of his car. Now, if I was sitting in the United States government in the 1970s, I would say, well, let's think about the resilience of this country's security services. <laughs> let's think about how much information they have and how capable they are. They couldn't protect, hardly capable of doing so, an American president. Now, the Iranian security services, to say the least, have been unable to protect their most essential nuclear assets over the past years. The Israelis sort of land there in right. the day, have a picnic, steal some archives, whack a couple of scientists, do some shopping and tourism, <laughs> and then they leave. <laughs> now, I'm beginning to think that maybe those security services are not as in command of the situation as people think. More importantly, the Iranian security services continue to suffer from what we call intelligence failure. This is a country that keeps having popular insurrections, protests, and they keep not being able to foresee those developments. You are correct in the sense that they're more ideologically motivated. Uh, whether or not that means they can discharge the obligations of repressing the movement, I'm, I, I tend to believe not. But although this is a contested proposition, by the way, there are those who disagree with me that the Shah's military could, was as ineffective as I suggested it. So that is also a contested proposition. I would say in general, if a regime only has at its disposal its security organs as a means of perpetuating its power, it doesn't have much to lay on. If that's all you got, you don't have much. And the yeah. Islamic Republic today is a regime that lacks legitimacy, it lacks popularity, it lacks ability to reverse the course of its illegitimacy and, and lack of popularity. It is pursuing a foreign policy whose costs are more obvious than benefits, and is simply not being able to meet the demands of its population, either political or economic.
the history of Iran in the 20th century and well into the 21st century, in my view, is a history simply poor. As a population seeking a measure of self-determination and a role in government affairs, and a series of rulers unwilling to yield to that desire. That's the history of the country in the past 100 years. Uh, central powers, central authorities versus a population that demands a state and how it is gone. That struggle goes on in Iran today. It is my opinion that the Islamic Republic will at some point be called the same predicament as the monarchy. November, in November 1978, in an interview in Paris with, I believe, the Guardian newspaper, Khomeini is asked precisely this question. Tell me how it ends, how the Shah monarchy ends. And he responds, I don't know when it happens, I don't know how it happens, but all the signs tell me it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, a surprisingly small number of people seem to have died in the revolution. Um, Very small. The Islamic Republic claims in the preamble to its constitution that 60,000 people died. I think that figure is off by about 57,500 something. <laughs> So the Constitution begins with a law, and then it proceeds to guarantee freedoms that are also not maintained. So it is a completely fraudulent document. Uh, it pledges, it's, the only aspect of it that are true are the power that is granted to clerical bodies. So I want to get to some issues of, of foreign policy regarding Iran today. Um, first of all, negotiations are underway for a potential return to the JCPOA, the the, the Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration jettisoned, the U.S. and, and Iranian negotiators have been sort of meeting in Vienna. Um, I'm curious, what is your, your take on this? Is it is it simply a matter of time before you, we see a kind of choreographed return to the deal? Um, and do you think that that would be a good thing? Uh, I do believe that at some point there'll be a return to an agreement. And both sides desire an objective, the process will eventually suggest itself. Uh, and, you know, I think at some point we'll come back to an agreement. There is actually, despite all the partisan rancor, an agreement in both Tehran and Washington, in the sense that all factions agree. In the United States today, there's an agreement between Republicans and Democrats that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was flawed, and it has to be renegotiated. Uh, every time President Biden talks about longer and stronger, it means that the original deal was weak and short. So there's a consensus in Washington that the agreement has to be renegotiated. And there's a consensus in Tehran that none of that is going to happen. Uh, <laughs> so both parties are actually in agreement. Uh, they both want to return to agreement, and then Americans want to negotiate it and make it longer, stronger, broader, whatever that is. And the Iranians, of course, will not indulge that, although I think some process will go on. So I think there will be a return to an agreement. I don't believe that's a good idea because I don't know how you return to an agreement and forfeit your leverage and then try to renegotiate it. And to be fair to the Iranians, they do have a case. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was not an interim agreement. There's not a single sentence in there that says at some point this agreement can be renegotiated. Mm -hmm. And it's the Iranian position is that if John Kerry cannot, cannot negotiate a good agreement, why is that their problem? Yeah. It you seems know, you're going to do over. This is not this is not a, this is not a kid PB soccer league. If you miss three strikes, you go sit on the bench. He had the shot. He spent two and a half years in hotel rooms with them, and that's it. 
And the, the Trump administration's decision to get out of the deal seems to have uh, kind of unintentionally led to this consensus where everyone says that it was in fact flawed. But but the Democrats are eager, it seems, to get back into it, whereas the Republicans don't believe in getting back into it. Yeah, that's um, the, and, the Democrats, well, what can you say about the slogan, longer and broader? First of all, you can say that that slogan has not been explicated. What should be made longer? Should the sunset process be made longer? Okay, by how long? Six months or 6,000 years? Uh, so nobody knows what longer and stronger means. It's a slogan without content. It's diplomacy without substance. It's a good thing that that sort of a thing doesn't happen since the Trump administration left office. Uh, so, first of all, nobody knows what this means. Second of all, the only thing you can say about the longer and stronger is the original agreement was weak, the original agreement was short, and the people who are saying today that we need to renegotiate the agreement, the Biden administration officials, are precisely the same people that said in 2015, this agreement cannot be renegotiated and should not be renegotiated. They said it should not be renegotiated because it is the gold standard of arms control. It blocked all pathways, and there has never been a treaty with greater degree of internal visibility. Those are their talking points. And then right. they said this agreement simply cannot be renegotiated at all. It's not possible. So four years later, they're coming back and saying an agreement has to be renegotiated because it's flawed and it doesn't have all the things. So if you're sitting in Tehran, the, te the Iranian position is the Biden administration official's position of 2015. This agreement cannot be renegotiated, it should not be renegotiated, and they can give to Anthony Blinken his own talking points back. They can just read his statement, his testimony, and say, huh, it's a gold standard of arms control. It is the most important arms control agreement in memory. No agreement in history has been stronger, and under no circumstances it can be renegotiated. Anthony Blinken, July 2015. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I, 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 all, all I would do if I was an Iranian official is read them back their testimonies. I would show well, up with a stack of papers every day and read them. Yeah, that, I mean, it raises the question, though, then then why are the Iranians so reluctant to, to re-enter the deal um, if, you know, if, if they the were so happy with it before? They're not reluctant to re-enter the deal. They're, what their position is, the United States left the deal, and it can come back to the deal. And if it comes back to the deal, there are certain things that we have done that we're going to rectify. Uh, it is important to recognize today that Iran is enriching uranium at 60%. And New York Times keeps telling you that they're not, that they're getting close to a bomb. 60% is weapon-grade uranium. You can make a nuclear weapon with 60%. According to the IAEA's own guidelines, uranium enriched beyond 28% can be used for manufacturing a weapon. The South African bomb was enriched up to 80%. The American bomb that exploded over Hiroshima was at 85%. You don't have to get to 97% to have a bomb. As you and I are speaking, the Islamic Republic is in possession of weapon-grade uranium. Let's get that straight. Yeah, you don't uh, you don't hear that uh, in the New York Times very often. Um, you don't hear one, thing that, <laughs> one thing I want to ask is uh, the the Biden administration officials often speak of the a hypothetical follow on agreement, um, as if that's something that 
the Islamic Republic is is even willing to to negotiate to, to countenance. Is that a fiction? Why do we keep hearing talk about a following? Uh, I don't know a single political actor, a political faction in Iran that is for renegotiating the agreement. I don't know a single person uh, that's in any position of authority or likely to come that is prone to negotiate the formal I don't know who that person is. Okay. Uh, last question before we let you go. Uh, of course, everyone's attention right now is focused on what's happening in Israel uh, between um, Israel and, and Hamas and Gaza. Uh, Hamas has been launching rockets into Israel and Israel has been staging airstrikes um, and civilians have been dying. Uh, I'm wondering, since you're, you're very knowledgeable about uh, Iranian uh, politics, um, how, to what extent do you see this as a proxy war between uh, Israel and Iran? Hamas, of course, is known for be, uh, as being the recipient of, of Iranian uh, aid and help. Um, some say even uh, missile technology. Um, what is your what is your view of, of Iran's role in, in possibly even fomenting this this crisis? Uh, I am not sure if Iran actually instigated this crisis. Uh, I, I think it might have come about for a very complicated set of reasons that Palestinian and Israelis seem to engage uh, in very complex. But I do think they favor prolongation of this conflict, perpetuation of it, for the simple reason that it creates fissures between the United States and Israel. It puts pressure on the Israeli government, and it kind of distracts attention from some of their own activities, law-on activities throughout the region. I cannot say that they instigated this, but I do believe that there are beneficiaries of this. Whenever Arabs and Israelis go to war, Iran always benefits. That was a true during the Shah's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shah benefited from the 1973, the Yom Kippur War, because the oil prices went up. Uh, he benefited from the 67 war because it caused the defeat of radical Arab republics that were against monarchical system of government, including his own conservative monarchy. Whenever Arabs and Israelis go to war, Iranian officials get travel miles on American airlines. They always benefit. (laughs) 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 That was true then, it's true today. So that's one of the consistencies between monarchical and Islamic Republic. Uh, The Islamic Republic is much more complicit this, as you suggested, because it is a benefit, it is a benefactor of Hamas in terms of assistance and its military technology, and it has long instigated violence against the state of Israel. And I think it is having a, a, a moment of satisfaction that this conflict is taking place. And the Iranian, the Islamic Republic officials have always been different to Arabs dying in a cause that they believe that the Islamic Republic believes that they're willing to sacrifice as many Arabs as possible for the cause that the Islamic Republic believes in. That was true in the Syrian civil war, it is true in Iraq, it is true in the, in the, in the Israeli-Palestinian leader as well. So I think they find this moment of violence on Israel's periphery a satisfactory moment, and they are particularly hardened by the divisions that this may be causing in the U.S.-Israeli armies. Yeah, that's a whole a whole other issue that well, we won't get to. Um, but Ray Take, thank you very much for coming on the Caravan Podcast. 
Be sure to check out Ray's book, The Last Shaw, and remember to follow the Hoover Institution's working group on the Middle East and the Islamic world at www.hoover.org slash caravan. My colleague, Russell Berman, will be back in about two weeks for the next episode of the Caravan Podcast. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.